Today's episode of Undesign comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders past, present and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome to Undesign. I'm your host, Costa Lucas. Thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand that we all have so much we can bring to these challenges, so listen in. See where you fit in as we undesign the topic of digital health and safety for LGBT plus youth. In the age of social media, we are consistently challenged to think about social norms that occur in digital society. We celebrate the opportunities that social media provide, how they bring people from different places together, especially in the era of the pandemic. On the other hand, we often find ourselves baffled by the explicitly harmful comments that we encounter on social media, and how much harm cyberbullying actually causes, especially towards marginalized groups. In this episode, we explore the risks and opportunities that social media brings towards LGBT plus communities, and even take a peek into the future to see what a platform would look like if we designed it from scratch with these safety considerations in mind. Helping us untangle this wicked problem are our latest special guests, Dr. Ben Hankel and Dr. Shiva Chandra. Ben is a senior research fellow in the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University, and his research examines youth health and well-being, social inequalities in health and social change. His work has examined the design of digital technologies for health and the use of digital technologies for well-being, with a particular focus on the lived experiences of young people, including sexuality and gender-diverse youth. He's led research projects across Australia, East and Southeast Asia, as well as the United Kingdom. Shiva is also a researcher at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney. He uses creative and innovative methods to explore subjectivity and how individuals relate to their social worlds. Shiva is interested in exploring how scholarship can sit at the intersection of academia and community development, and his interests include the sociology of personal life, sexuality, gender, race, and decolonization. To begin with, Ben and Shiva eloquently bring us insights from their research on the importance of embedding policy solutions into social media platform design, and we talk about what safety means in a digitized world and how it can be codified into these platforms to create safer, more ethical community for all especially young people from marginalized groups. Ultimately, throughout our conversation, we keep interrogating this question of whether feelings of safety can be adequately retrofitted into current social media, or do we really need to start from scratch? All right, Ben and Shiva, welcome. How are we both today? Great. Okay, well, thanks Thanks for having us, Costa, on the show. My absolute pleasure. Where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from Sydney. Yes, me as well. Um, not, not, not so sunny Sydney today. Again, really appreciative of both of you taking the time to talk to me about, and, you know, and our audience around this idea of, you know, creating safe online spaces, particularly for marginalized youth. So I figured a place to start really would be to talk about some of the research both of you started or launched, I should say, earlier this year. So there was the report that you released in May, Social Media Insights from Sexuality and Gender Diverse Young People During COVID-19. Can I just open the floor to both of you to take me through that research? 
What did you find from that? And actually, why did you do that piece of research to begin with? Where did the need come from? So yeah, so th- thanks, Costa. I, I guess first, just to kind of firstly kind of say that what we did was we spoke to 65 LGBT plus young people from around Australia who identified as sexuality and gender diverse. I guess over the last few years, mine and Shiva's work have both been looking at gender and sexuality diverse people within Australia and their experiences. My own work is very much focused on digital technologies and how young people have been going online, I guess, because of a lot of the the homophobia, the transphobia, the stigma that exists in the local places like the school, amongst their friends and families. So they often go online to find information. And what we realized was actually during COVID-19, as we all experienced, was that during lockdown, we were suddenly back at home. For all of us, we were locked down, often with families for a lot of young people. And we wanted to know what these young people were doing in these contexts online when that was one of the only access options they had to the outside world, what they were doing in relation to that and where they, where they were going, what they were doing and trying to make sense of those online experiences. Is that, that, that was kind of the, the need we identified, right, Shiva? I think so, yeah. And what are, what are some of the main things you found from, from that study? So in terms, in terms of some of the main things, I think one, thing, one of the big findings was that young people were going online to look for similar others. They're looking to find information about gender and sexuality information in relation to their identity or what they think could be their identity. They wanted to find out more information. Online spaces like Facebook, TikTok, Instagram provided safe spaces where they could look for information because they would make their profiles private, for instance, or where they would um, block certain people from being able to see things so they could explore in very safe and careful ways to be able to do that work. I think what was exciting for them was that they were able to find relatable people online who shared similar interests. What was not so exciting was also seeing the kind of homophobia and transphobia that continues into these online spaces as well. I mean, going off what Ben's saying, I think one thing that we thought was quite an interesting finding was at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of service providers within the community were quite concerned about how COVID would have a negative impact on queer people. And also a few stories coming out about people having to move in with queerphobic family members, for example, right? And obviously those were quite real concerns, which were warranted. And obviously those were also quite real experiences for certain people. But it was really interesting because what Ben and I found was that along with those things, there were actually some really interesting stories that probably had a more positive dimension. So for example, some of the queer people we spoke to said that actually COVID-19 provided a time in which they could step back from society and actually think about the gender and sexuality because the social forces weren't around them all the time in the way they are when you're out and about. They felt that they could really take that time to think through some of those things. The way Ben and I have been phrasing it um, when we've been speaking about it is that for some people, queerness actually flourished during COVID-19. Wow, that's interesting because that's not something, I hope that's not too pessimistic or simplistic, but like it's not something you would assume would happen, right? I guess it's just something COVID, if anything, from just talking in, about it in other spaces, seemed to have this very polarizing effect, even within certain spaces. I almost would have imagined that it, you would find the extremes of both the positive and negative experiences. But from what I'm understanding, it, it's probably a bit more complicated than that in this particular context. I think so. I think so. And a lot of the young people we spoke to were already doing a lot of curating their 
profiles, right, in particular ways. So they were already engaging with things before COVID and and kind of kept going on during COVID as well. In terms of just honouring the diversity of experiences within the LGBT plus community, some people, I guess, ask the question of whether it's helpful to talk about a community experience as a whole. Do you have thoughts on whether it's useful to speak of an LGBT plus community as a whole and why or why not? Do you want me to take this one, Ben? You can take, you can take this one, Shiva. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. So I have actually looked at the idea of community in my, in my work. And I think, so, so I think community is a complicated concept, right? Especially as it relates to queer people. Often when we think about queer community, we assume that people will feel a sense of belonging with others like them. So it's this idea that being queer is enough to create a sense of belonging with others like you based on that queer aspect of who you are. And, you know, certainly in our study, we we had many respondents who spoke about finding queer people like them in online spaces, right? So they would use words like like-mindedness, understanding, acceptance, friendship, relatability, comfort, empathy, support, safety, and feeling protected to describe this sense of community. In practice, we saw this in things like talking and building um, relationships with people on platforms, um, moderating Discord service, servers, contributing to Facebook groups or creating content or TikTok and Instagram. And then we had some people who spoke about actually not engaging with um, queer community directly, right? So they just watch, they just, they just watch the posts or simply lurk right in the background and just mm-hmm. watch what's going on. But it was really interesting because that actually wasn't really meaningful to them, right? So just the mere act of watching people like you created a sense of belonging and a sense of community connection. So I'll go all um, scholarly and put my my eye on how I had on. So there is this scholar called Benedict Anderson who talks about this idea of an imagined community, right? So Mm -hmm. very simply, it's this idea that you might not know everyone in in a nation, but you feel a sense of solidarity with them as you imagine yourself as part of this big group. So you could say that in a similar manner for these young people who were just, you know, watching maybe, for example, other queer people, that actually allowed them to imagine, right, belonging to this sense of community. But I guess, you know, in saying all of that, and I think sometimes this is a conversation that we don't have, is that, is that you know, community is complex, right? So, for example... We know that racism exists in queer spaces, right? There is literature that has said that. But we also know that transphobia exists in queer spaces. So in relation to the study Ben and I did, we did hear of negative experiences in queer spaces online. And I actually have a quote from one of our respondents that I think, you know, like illustrates this really nicely. And this person was talking about witnessing transphobia. And they said to us, I'm not trans, but like witnessing transphobia within the community, like it breaks my heart. One of my really good friends is trans and like it just breaks my heart that that exists in the, in like sort of this community that praises itself for being so inclusive. So I think that's a, a nice illustration of how community is complex and we can't talk about it as implying solidarity necessarily at that big level. I think, you know, going back to the question you initially asked, I think that 
thinking of queer communities maybe in the plural is actually a helpful way to think about think about what community means to people and also acknowledges the fact that not all queer people will feel belonging by just because of their queerness. But I think these examples and these complexities also caution us not to romanticise ideas of community based mm. on this sense of togetherness because I think what can happen is sometimes that can mask aspects of community or, or, or what we call community that aren't so great, where people who are marginalised do things to each other that 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 might not actually be that nice. Yes. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Oh, I don't love the nuance, but I really appreciate the nuance there in terms of the idea of community as a as a unifier in terms of people with shared experiences might find affinity with one another. And then that differentiation between community as people that choose to be together because of more like personal affinity or whatever it is. So this idea that it, it kind of f- feels like it's somewhere in the middle where like seeing yourself reflected in something like social media has that ability to bridge you to other members in those broader communities. But at the same time, it doesn't flatten it doesn't flatten your experience and make it make the affinity like really strong straight away. It's not just because you're queer that you're going to identify with other queer people per se. It's just more like a, a, a gap is being filled somewhat and complexity exists within those gaps too, just like any community, right? Like even in the culturally, linguistically diverse space, some people find that to be a very flattening label and it absolutely is in times. But it speaks to an experience based on an identity or an attribute that is being treated by society in a particular way. And I guess, is that the the reality we acknowledge when we talk about queer communities or LGBT plus communities, that there is a experience that most people in those communities would share that we are not reacting to, but just have to live with. And we all deal with that in our different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think it, it it does definitely. I think I think there is this sense that there's like there's this broader participation in this broader LGBT plus community. I think that's what, like what Shiva was kind of talking about, but also that sense of like being connected to something. And I was just thinking as we were talking, then one thing that came up in the research um, was that young people would talk about being part of communities in these social media spaces, almost like almost like well, they actually spoke about it as Venn diagrams. So it'd be kind of like this overlapping kind of sense of like. Yes, like I've got kind of my LGBT plus people or community, but then also on top of that, it might be overlaid with my gaming community or the people who bake or the artists or whatever, whatever it kind of was, there'd be other kind of overlapping communities that they just kind of saw themselves as part of. Sometimes they'd go in kind of to the gaming community first and they'd happen to just find other trans or gender diverse and sexuality diverse young people there. And so it'd be almost like a kind of a value add of being there. But these these communities kind of were really interesting in the sense that they were overlapping. They kind of cross platforms sometimes, and I think that to me that's another important point is that as Shiva and I were kind of doing this work, we actually realised that young people were engaging across social media platforms. So it wasn't just happening on one platform. Sure, it often happened yep. on multiple. This is kind of probably not surprising when we think about our own social media practices. But kind of academics call this the kind of polymedia practices, where you kind of engage across social media platforms to kind of make sense of things. And I think young people were really aware of kind of try, like I guess aware of others who they could they could relate to, but they also were aware of the absences as well. And I think this is kind of what Shiva was getting at also around kind of what was there and what wasn't there. So we had some young people kind of talking about 
that see that see people who are very similar for, for some I would say some young uh, white sexuality and gender diverse young people they often see a lot of similar people to themselves in representations online but when you kind of start to look at the what the algorithm is giving you it's not necessarily coming up with diverse content for instance and some young people were really conscious of this and were kind of thinking well what can we one what, what why don't we see ourselves for those young people who might be people of color might uh, might have disabilities what where are they in these kind of like representations that are coming up sure. um, and what we heard from young people was they were often trying to engage at times in some of some actions i guess online that were trying to disrupt some of those some of that that was coming through as well so we had one young person and shiva will remember this as well who is trying to create they were trying to create more diversity in their feed so they'd go out looking for people with characteristics that they didn't necessarily have as part of their identity from memory they were i think they, were, they identified as a white cis lesbian and they were looking for characteristics looking for any of them they're looking for characteristics she was nodding she was shaking his head so i've got the i've got their identity label incorrect but in terms of they were looking for diversity outside of their characteristics of that that person so and they'd have what they would call it diversify your feed tuesday where they try and like encourage oh, their wow. friends and their networks as well to then diversify their feeds to kind of talk back to algorithms which they saw as marginalizing and not right. kind of creating the space for other people to be seen and heard as well. That's interesting. That was going to be my next line of questioning, just around like some of the challenges or those absences, what they were and what you, at least in this initial research, attribute them to. Is it the actual structure of the social media themselves, like as platforms, or is it more about the people using them and all these sorts of things? Where did you land on sort of where these challenges stem from? I guess, or these, yeah, these, these absences or barriers. Do you mean like lack of representation, Costa? Yeah, I, I guess all of the above in that. Yeah. Is it lack of representation? That was a, an issue because, for example, just by virtue of algorithms favoring particular types of creators, or is it more about in the representation of creators that exist in a pool, like only only so many of them are actually from a queer or LGBT plus community. Did you have a, did you form any preliminary kind of understanding or conclusions on those sorts of gaps? I do wonder how much of it, I guess you can kind of cut it, the question in many ways. And I'm sure it probably has many answers because often a neat, simplistic answer isn't true. And I wonder to what extent, you know, a sense of, coloniality or whiteness has a role to do with it historically tracing that historically so we know that various societies did have different ways of doing gender for example and that we know that when colonization happened it wasn't like the colonizers were like this is great you know that wasn't actually the case so you know so, so those things I guess got marginalized in those processes right like different ways of doing gender that would have existed in colonized spaces and of course with historically thinking colonization also brought it with it the dominance of a sense of whiteness and Europeanness. And so it wouldn't be surprising if that's getting reproduced again in digital spaces because these things are, you know, digital isn't isn't not not real life. It is real life. Yeah, that's online, right. Online yeah. are the same. And so I would or wouldn't surprise me if, if the normativity of whiteness that began with a colonial project is what we are seeing reflected in social media spaces, even in the contemporary context. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I mean, that's great. Because the question I probably should have asked, which was, did you have a view on whether it's like policies and standards on existing social media that are 
letting these things sort of perpetuate? Or is it more a matter of platform design? Like, are they designed to favor certain groups by virtue of just the origins of from which they came from, you know? So if we're talking about designing for everyone everywhere, and we talk about building accessible or inclusive technology in so many contexts, it's like when, when you know, cis white guys design social media, the defaults get built into it or, or certain defaults get built into it. And I, I guess I'm trying to flesh that out a bit more, whether that's, whether that's something that's replicated here as well. I'm just, I'm just thinking as you're talking then as well, that like social media platforms, one of the, one of the big things about a social media platform is that it valorizes or affords visibility. Mm. And mm. so being able to kind of like be visible and kind of share, share statuses, share images across networks is a big core part, I guess, of the business in the sense that it connects people and shares that information through the processes of that sharing, I guess, like in our everyday worlds, there's certain things that are acceptable to share and things that are not acceptable. That, that means those things, I guess, that are outside the norm. And as Shiva was kind of talking about these norms that we have exists with very these kind of historical trajectories that have led us to this particular point, which then get remediated in online and recirculated in particular ways. And I remember from a previous project that I was doing, looking at other LGBT plus young people in Australia, they would they would actively talk about not talk not not participating in conversations about often the the milestones that they were meant to hit if they kind of had a, a, the kind of the you know quote using quotation marks here, but the kind of normal life. So they're kind of like having children, getting married, kind of doing all those those things that might be expected across the life course. If they don't have those things, they kind of opted out of those conversations already and didn't kind of make visible their own experiences, which might be a little bit oh, different than that yeah. particular narrative. So in mm. some ways, this kind of like emphasis on visibility actually creates an invisible space for a lot of these LGBT young people to be part of. And so it's kind of an interesting kind of paradox of this focus on visibility yeah that's really like profound i guess just this idea that what you say and what you don't say can say so much about you to to your particular like friendship ecosystems or or wider things and yeah some people having the freedom to choose what they share without fear of consequence whether that's social political legal can boil down to something as personal as like that sounds really obvious, but I guess just hearing that play out here where, and I'm referring to some of the research that you've done in Southeast Asia, Ben, around using social media in a context where you're, you're part of a country that has criminalized homosexuality, for example, and same-sex activity and things like that. Even as something as structural and as kind of abstract feeling as a governance system can feel like, seeing that boil down to social media use and how that affects your ability to engage with it is something that's really quite profound, I guess. I, I, I guess I'm just thinking out loud about, man, that's really, that really cuts to the core of just people socializing and being and connecting with people, whatever the basis of that connection is. You know, if you can't share some things about your personal life because of fear of reprisal or, or ostracism, there's so much less choice for some people than others, I guess. I think, I think there's something, sorry, can I just jump in? I think there's something interesting there about kind of fear as well. Like you talk about fear and this feeling of fear. And I guess the, you know, the, the opposite side of that spectrum is this feeling of safety as well. And when something feels safe to be able to do, like, and participate in conversations, to be able to mm. explore identity. And I guess this kind of came out with like Shiva in my study as well, in the sense that we were looking, like we were hearing from young people about when they felt 
it was safe. They were they were looking for kind of happy spaces um, and found those happy spaces because they were able to kind of make them using the functionalities of social media platforms. And so they did find those happy and safe spaces, right? And so in a similar way, I guess, when I was doing some work in Southeast Asia and kind of looking at health into digital health interventions and what made them feel safe to LGBT young people, they were also looking for markers of safety. So they were looking for things like whether there was a privacy feature, whether they could stay anonymous. They're looking at wh what the organization was connected to. So for instance, was it connected to the United Nations or recognizable organizations? Like all these things, all these things kind of work together to create this sense of safety and security. It's kind of not one thing. And this is what my research found as well. It's not one thing right. that kind of like works in isolation, but it's all these things that kind of happen at the front end, but also a mm. recognition that actually at the back end, their data is going to be safe if they give it to someone or um, an organization, for instance, and that it may not be, particularly in Southeast Asia, where these things can be, you know, criminalized and are problematized by government and legisl legislative um, kind of infrastructures, that those things are not going to be kind of like a wall is not put up for them or that they're not going to get criminalized because of their activities online. So I think the sense of like safety obviously differs between contexts. I think this is a really important point, but what it means to, to have a happy space for these young people is really critical because I think it's part of that question about, okay, we need to actually work with young people here to find out what this means mm -hmm. to be able to kind of design for them for the future and make sure all people are kind of accounted for in design processes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really, that's a really great point. And I, this is what I loved about the research you both did is that I feel like it leaves that possibility open and obviously we'll get to some of the what that what platform design looks like with that in mind because i guess the the research you both did earlier this year was looking at existing platforms so and so on that basis right like from a more pragmatic view what did you where did you arrive in terms of what needed to change or what you'd like to see more of on existing platforms before we look at this question of well what would it look like to actually design it more sensitively and more co-designed from the beginning so from where we are now, what would you, what do you think needs to happen more to ensure that that, du that dual version of safety, like the freedom from and the freedom to do stuff is more possible for LGBT folks online? Shiva, did you want to go? You go first. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, do, do you know what, this is in some ways, actually, our, our kind of back and forth just then kind of represents how big a, big a problem in some ways this is, but also how, <laughs> how, how how complex it is, how complex it is True. to kind of solve as yeah, well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can kind of see that. Or even that there will be a panacea solution, which which is also like... Of course. Yeah, because you're like, how can any one thing meet everyone's needs? It will do its best to do it, but, it's so, but it is quite difficult, right, mm. to, yeah. to then think about it. I guess, and I guess in saying that, I think a good platform would have precisely that. It's an ability to try and meet as many different types of needs possible through the affordances that it that that it has, right? And I think accounting for multiple people, different experiences and lives and what they might want to do on these spaces is probably a good starting point for me. Mm -mm -mm. And I think, what, what are, oh, sorry, Ben, you go. I was just, I was just going to add that I think one of the things that came out was for like in our discussions was a lot of young people wanted transparency on platforms. So they wanted to kind of like know 
know what how platforms make decisions so what happens kind of behind the scenes how does content go, get moderated and how do they they themselves kind of get caught up in that content moderation so for, for them i think there's a sense of like yes it's kind of what what shiva was saying this kind of sense of like okay the platform kind of working for them and being able to respond to their needs but it was also kind of understanding how the platform works and what's not acceptable and what's acceptable and how decisions are made particularly around things like censorship because the censorship was one thing that came up in in every single discussion we had with young people but but it was a quite a complicated discussion in some ways because censorship was seen as something that was that was useful on occasion when there was kind of malice or harmful content kind of involved but when it wasn't necessarily there it was kind of it was young people were more open to like not having censorship take place and rather kind of having more of an approach that um the week what we we were talking about as an educative approach where young people were wanting to educate make sure other people got educated and informed about things rather than kind of being shut down because they were also kind of feared their own their own their own processes of the system kind of shutting them down for having opinions as well so this is kind of like space of like yes we want to be able to kind of have collective discussions about some of these important issues but how do we do this in like safe kind of collective educative kind of ways moving forward rather than just kind of censoring or moderating content so it can't be seen i think that was kind of the the thing that came up then and i think that kind of points to the types of spaces that young people want as well to kind of acknowledge the complexity of some of these issues but also the need to kind of like also talk and kind of work with people to move through the problems that might be in the logic of their arguments as well like it's not it's right. not really just about censorship yeah. sorry I, I kind of took us down a rabbit hole there but i think no, it's an it's, important point and i you know we were talking about like the work you do occurring through a particular lens right like you're you're working with lgbt plus young people and hearing you say all that stuff reminds me of my work in the extremism space where it's like well it's it's a pretty similar concept where there's thresholds of what is acceptable and what's not there's thresholds of good faith and not so good faith in terms of what actions come as a result. And and what I'm hearing is that there's an acknowledgement within queer communities that, you know, people have complex relationships with the languages and the words that we use online too, and that there are moments to seize to to be educative and and like to build community using some of those gray area type um content, I guess if we will call it, um, and not just having an all or nothing arbitrary kind of approach where you shut it down no matter the context just because a particular um, AI mechanism went off because it, you know, it's more looking out around content, intent, prior behavior, impact on audiences and things like that. I'm, I'm just hearing a lot of parallels there. Have I understood that right? Mm, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. I think, I think it is highly contextualized and it was you know, really interesting because there was also there was also like a pragmatism at, 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 as well in the sense of it's like, well, if you're going to shut someone down for being, I don't know, racist, they're just going to go create another account. What is that going to achieve? Like an educative approach at least tries to do something to bring, to make change, but shutting down, like, where is that going to get anyone? Like that's not going to transform anything. And it's, yes. I guess, which means that, you know, platforms should really think about the transformative capacities they can have. But also it means that, it me, you know, thinking, really thinking about what are the platform's ethics and what kind of society they want to create. Because fundamentally you're involved in the creation of a particular reality. And I think it means that you need to think about what that is 
and how you are getting there, but to not think that you are creating the world. Like literally it's world making, you're literally creating the world, but not to think of it in that way that you're creating. I mean, yeah, if you don't think of it that way, then you're not going to feel responsibility. But if you think of it actually creating reality, then it Mm. means that you will think carefully about what happens to produce that reality and what reality do you want people to live in? Yeah. And like you said, Shiva before, like it's digital, but it's real, you know, like this is still real life and, you know, words, images, digital content has impact on us in the real world. We react and we act and behave and exist online, you know, in conjunction with our worlds offline too. Like these are symbiotic, you know, rather than just like, I mean, some people treat them to varying degrees of separateness, but like there is a, there's, we're not disconnect, like our online worlds are not completely disconnected. They're either reactions to, or they are as a result of, or, you know, in combination with. So that's just kind of what comes to mind as you say that there. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess you cry when you watch movies. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So why would this be any different? Why would it be any different? That's right. I feel like this is actually a really good sort of segue now into this idea of like, okay, let's see if we think about designing platforms from the beginning to be more to, yeah, to balance these ideas of safety, how that would look and what is the basis for doing some of that? So have you started looking at that already? Is this what, what has come next as a result or or a continuation of the work that you both started? This was kind of, this was kind of built into the, the project to some degree, because in our conversations with young people, we did like, we incorporated this component, which would really be about, would really be co-design and kind of like prototyping kind of solutions for the future and what that kind of looked like. And I guess that through the, that process, and like Shiva was talking about a moment ago, these that, these queer young people who we spoke to were really engaged in this kind of like, well, what would I do if I was running a platform? What would it mean to kind of do some of this world-making work on different social media platforms? And I think there were a couple of things that really like came out in the, in the discussions. I think one was definitely around that kind of sense of like, what, what is content moderation? How does content get moderated? We, we need to be more transparent with the guidelines. That needs to be clearer. At least as users of the platform, they were, the, I think, a lot of LGBT plus young people really want to know why why their content might be moderated or might be censored. And it needs to be very clear why that is the case and where the line yep. is. I think the, the, other, the other thing that, I, that came out for me was about kind of how platforms can enhance certain types of content. So if we go back to what I was talking about before, about kind of diversifying feeds and algorithms, there's a real opportunity here. And I think young people spoke to this about the opportunity to make sure there was more diversity across the platform about enhancing certain types of content. But with that also comes the responsibility of platforms to make sure that those people's content, who is enha- who, which is enhanced, are supported when that goes up and is maybe goes across groups. It may end up with greater amounts of transphobia, homophobia that come up in the comments, for instance. So yeah. it comes back to this point. And I think Shiva made a, like that really good point before about like, well, platforms are responsible here and how are they kind of participants in this process of like platform design for inclusivity and what does that kind of look like? And so they're, they're two, of, I think they're two of the, two of the big things that came out for me. Shiva, were there other things there that I'm sure that I've, I've missed? No, I think you're right. I think they are probably two of the big things that, yeah, definitely came out when we were talking about what a good platform would look like. Yeah. One thing I actually wanted to touch on as well was this idea of sort of affect-based design, right? Because it's just something I'd seen reference to in some of the work. 
Can you expound on that about what that actually is and like why it's important in a context like this one? If we think back, if we think about affective design, my, my, go, my go-to always when I think about this is to kind of think about gaming. And if you play video games, they're kind of designed so that you will, you will have particular affects or sensations or emotions as you're playing the game. And I think in, in a similar way, and this, this holds for all designers of all platforms, of all technologies, there's, there's an opportunity to engage with people's emotions and sensations as you're designing these spaces. And for me, when it comes to LGBT plus young people and marginalized young people more generally, if I go back to this idea about the affect or feeling of safety, security, and I guess that sense of personal personal safety in, in spaces, I think there's a real question here about how do we how do we make sure that spaces are designed for these young people for the future or that they can enable that that design of those spaces. So at the moment, there's sometimes there's things that come up that weren't built for for that originally, but enable it. So for instance, there's Instagram allows you to have multiple profiles. That comes out of kind of a, you know, kind of a providing businesses with the opportunity to have multiple profiles. But young people can have multiple profiles, which enables them to have multiple accounts where they can create safer spaces to have conversations, to engage with friends in those different spaces. And this is one thing we found was a lot of young people actually, well, are using firstly Instagram, but secondly, that they were creating these second profiles to find other LGBTQIA plus young people have those no conversations in these, or yeah. at least follow them and kind of see what they were doing, learn from them. I mean, it makes sense. Learn from yeah. those experiences. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I guess I guess what I'm saying is if we're thinking about creating safer and happy spaces, then this is this is the type of thing that we have to be directed towards to think, okay, what does safety feel like? And like I was saying before, it's not it's not just one safe safety feature. It's actually multiple that kind of work together in this very like kind of like kind of you know, multiple affective experiences that come together and accumulate so that people can go, oh, I feel safe here. I can talk about something I might be experiencing, some anxiety about being sexually, sexuality and gender diverse. Um, they might be able to talk about and learn about, you know, a variety of issues that young LGBT people face. And I think that's that's a critical part of these these the design of these spaces is getting this right and finding out with young people what actually makes those feelings of safety present and how can we do this in a really in a in a legitimate and responsible way, which also should be embedded in kind of data collection processes as well, so young people feel they can participate without being too worried about yeah about not not being able to hear and yeah not having their voices heard. I guess is yeah, what I'm trying sure. to say. Yeah, sure. I think the other thing is to also remember that things will go wrong and that things will not work right like there will be safe spaces but inevitably something could go wrong right which is a part of the vicissitudes of existence right that yeah, things go yeah. wrong yeah, um, absolutely so I, think, so I think as much as you i think as much as it is important to think about creating safe spaces i think a part of that is also thinking about what will we do if things don't work what will we do if things go wrong i think that's really important because this idea that you can design something that will be risk-free and will completely work flawlessly is quite naive, I think. And I think it's a disservice not to think that, okay, it still might go wrong, but what are we going to do about it? Mm. And I guess the the options available to you will be really informed by how you design these platforms to begin with, right? Like as in you create something that is robust enough to respond and to adapt in the face of new information, whereas... I feel like with social media companies, sometimes it can be a bit, well, a bit 
it's a bit of an understatement maybe it could be quite rigid you know to 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 make meaningful change that actually you know there has to be a certain threshold of harm i feel for something to significantly change which is not necessarily the orientation we want to have when it comes to social media we want more proactive preventative kind of mindsets that are but also yeah this idea that it's not completely foolproof and that everyone has a responsibility like in in making it safe right you know you just brought to mind a like a little metaphor i use when i talk about social media with classes and i'm like think of your social media profile as like your house on a street like if we're all if we've all got profiles in the same ecosystem like our little patch is like the part we look after and together we kind of make a neighborhood and like when i'm scrolling through my news feed I'm having a look at what's on your front lawn, like, and together that creates a picture too. So like, what are, what are we actually, what world are we building together? You know, and what is, you can't control necessarily what other people do. You can control what you see, but like, you can think about like, what does that look like as a collective picture? Is that a world you want to inhabit? So I think that's a really just, yeah, reminded of that as you were talking about that before Shiva about like, this is something we create together and it's very real. I think um, like the other point, I guess, and I Ben and I kind of made this point right at the end of our report. So it's weird because it's like right at the end, but yeah, it's actually, sure. I think, a really important point. The point is social media is not just what happens on social media. It's also what happens in society. So if you have governments and schools and religious organisations that do actually engage in queer phobia, then you are going to get queer phobia on platforms on digital spaces. So the thing is, even if you are not on a digital space and you are still propagating those ideas, you are having an impact on a digital space because these things aren't, these things are literally embedded together, right? That, like we're saying, the offline online divide doesn't really work. So in that sense, I would, you know, I, I'd argue that actually governments, schools, organisations of various sorts, the values they have are social media practices even if they never engage on them because what they say and the, and the impact it has on people and what it allows them to feel is okay to say has an impact on what they do online and i think and i think it's important to remember that because it really responsibilizes social media practices as a thing that everyone is engaged in even if you don't realize it yeah that actually just brings to mind a question then regarding the different contexts, right? Like, do the do the principles of good platform design change depending on the context? Say you're talking about a queerphobic like political context versus a not so not as queerphobic political context. Do the design principles change? Like, particularly if it's coming from like a grassroots community sort of orientation, how do you how can we ensure that people can design spaces like this in contexts that are more oppressive, I guess, and, and, and phobic? I think it's, I think it's a great question. It's a, it's a big question as well. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, th but I think, I think in terms of, in terms of this, I think uh, platforms and technology designers more generally kind of have a, an ethical obligation to design across contexts. And a part of, part of the reason for that now is that I guess if you create, a technological platform with information of any kind on it, whether that's video, text, whatever that kind of looks like, it it is it's foreseeable that it could travel around the world. So in most countries, most people can access that. So what does that mean when it kind of reaches a space? What what does that look like? And I think this is where kind of like design thinking and design principles should really take into account 
who these potential users are. These potential users are transnational. It was something that like, I, I guess when I was looking at a digital transnational intervention in Southeast Asia had to be considered quite substantially. And even, even to the point where I guess it got like things like the, you know, whether it was a, a dot, dot com URL or like if it had a like kind of a dot my for instance for Malaysia, even those things were considered because the way that it was regulated would then be regulated according to the media laws within each country. And so I think it's like kind of taking into account all the different elements of the of the platform and kind of designing and thinking about who's the user who's going to come into contact with the space. What are the implications for that user of kind of seeing this information and will that, and I think even asking that question and like thinking about the context in which it's going into, will the user themselves have private access to a device that allows them to see this content when they go, or if they happen to come into contact with it? Like all of these things, I think come together to kind of go, okay, we need to be, we need to be thinking about all of these things, but it's not just thinking about the potential users. I think this is where Shiva and I got to with some of our thinking in this report is actually embedding users in the design of the space as well. Yeah, like, and I yeah. think this is where we need LGBTQIA+, all, all, the, all across the kind of alphabet soup, kind of involved in these processes and discussing and talking about well, what design works in what context, what design might not work. How can that actually influence then the design considerations that go into platform making and even and even the algorithms that kind of like make decisions about what types of content we would want yeah. to see on a daily basis. Mm. And I know that Ben and I have spoken about, you know, consulting with LGBT plus people and kind of going back to what I said earlier about the idea that there isn't a monolithic thing and I do not profess to have the answers for this. So sure. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but do Can not. But the thing is, I guess the underpinning assumption also in this idea that you'll have that you work with the community is the idea that the community will want the one thing. So what will happen when the community doesn't want the one thing, right? And how do we negotiate around that? I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know the answer, but I think it is something to entertain the idea that communities are not monolithic. And, and like I said, right at the start, and that there will be complexities, which means different that the queer community, all inverted commas, by the way, will have different needs and wants, which will then need to be thought about at that level as well, I guess. And also they're probably point in time assessments too, as in, so it's like what will work at one stage might not work in the future because of changing context, changing needs, changing people. So do you think maybe the answer or one of the answers or one of the solution lies in this idea of, well, thinking of the design process as an ongoing conversation as well, that is subject to further input for a re-evaluation and all that sort of stuff? I think so. Yeah. I, I, you know, when you were thinking about even moderation practices, like they're very point in time kind of judgments a lot of the time. And then, you know, and like you said, like, you know, you take something down, people find new ways to express it or they'll express it in it, like whether that's creating a new profile, whether it's using coded language. If you just use the same sort of, moderation practice you did in 2020 it might not hold up in 2021 because things just move so fast like you know there's the classic examples of how people use brackets to to use use it for like anti-semitic kind of commentary as well you know those sorts of things that require ongoing conversation to to moderate against and potentially design against i would think so i, I imagine that something similar would exist in this context too right 
Definitely. And I think, I think it's actually, I think it's, I think it's about kind of having, so yes, definitely kind of consulting, talking with communities at different points in time. I think that's, and it should be an ongoing conversation. I agree about that, but also I was just thinking when you were just kind of talking about kind of some of the, some of the slang, the tools that get used kind of as kind of very kind of, you know, excluding kind of devices online, then I think you'd also need people with that knowledge who know kind of they're kind of in, in knowledge, I guess, around that information and how that gets used in particular ways to kind of make sense of that, but also kind of to re- to respond to it in ways that kind of suit the people who it's kind of used against as well. Yes. Yeah. I think Ben's just asking for a job. Like he's just like, I'm creating a, <laughs> creating a job for myself. If you need someone who knows that stuff, hit me up. Hit me up. <laughs> well, if I find out, Ben, I'll tell you, no problem. I think that we could probably use more more things like that in those spaces, which is great. But I think it's been interesting because like, you know, while Ben's been talking about, well, what makes good design, it actually seems to be less about the actual like the actual this X, Y, Z needs to happen, but about having a good set of questions. Yes. And yes. trying to understand things in their quest- in their context. It actually seems to be the questions you ask, how you think about the thing, I mean, the platform, sorry. And all those things, it's about, it's about having those things in place that seems to be good design. Like good design is actually asking the right things and thinking about the right things as opposed to creating the right checkbox. Yeah, that's such a good point. Just looking to the future now, what what is next for this sort of uh, research that you're both involved with right now? Like, is there anything you can talk to us about that you're working on that might move this conversation along? So I, I guess uh, for both Shiva and I, we're both kind of working on various projects with LGBT plus people across Australia, like where, where the digital kind of like interfaces with their lives and the kind of implications for that. So this is kind of, an, I guess, as you were saying before, if it's about an ongoing conversation, in design processes. This is also about an ongoing kind of like research work that needs to keep taking place as well to kind of make sense of these experiences as they change over time. So that's, yeah. So we're kind of like headed in that direction to kind of keep making sense of these things with communities as they arise and as new platforms, like we've seen TikTok kind of like take off over the last two years, as new platforms kind of emerge, what does that mean for these communities? Is it is it helping young people in what ways, what ways are challenging and how can we work with them to, to shift some of the some of the pro- things that are more challenging for them. Great. And Shiva, mm-hmm. how about yourself? Me? Yeah, I'll go with what Ben said. I mean, yeah, I think, I think one thing that's, I just find so interesting about all of this is like the agency that people are able to exercise and creativity, like, you know, like, and the thing is, I've always thought that one of the most amazing things is creativity in in our existence, right? That creativity is a thing that happens. And it, I just think it's so interesting how people can use it to be creative, to either do bad things and propagate hate and work around systems. But also, like, I think it's also amazing that people are creative and agentic to do it, it to, to use systems in ways that meet their needs, in ways that are positive as well. And I think that's a really nice thing. Like, a lot of... You know, like I know we were speaking about, you know, uh, people not being able to express themselves on certain platforms, which obviously isn't great, but it's also interesting to see how the, when people do have barriers, they don't become, they're not mere victims. They're actually people that would do and use things in really clever ways in order to still get their needs and desires. And obviously there's a positive and obviously that can be quite negative too, right? There's two sides of, of 
Absolutely. But, yeah. I, but, you know, but I guess thinking about queer people, it's amazing to see some of the ways that the young people were able to navigate these in, in ways that were really helpful for them and, and, and rich for them. Yeah, that's a really beautiful sentiment to sort of end on too. Um, Costa, can I, can I yeah, say one more, ben, can I say one more thing? Yeah, go <laughs> just for to, it. Just to kind of add to that. But I, I think one of the, the things that comes out of that too is by actually talking with young people and doing this research, we've actually kind of uncovered the ways they're using the current functionality on platforms that wasn't designed for that kind of intentionally. And so I think that that's kind of exciting. And the, the second thing I want to say, I did say I was only going to say one thing, but I'm going to say no, two No, go now. for it. Um, just about just about with Shiva, was kind of, I guess was kind of saying, we're seeing how young people are finding spaces, like fulfilling their needs. It's kind of there's the immediate needs. We saw that definitely within the research we were doing, but we also saw the long-term needs and wants of these young people as well. And Shiva and I have been talking about how this kind of um, representative of these spaces, this world that they want to live in as well. So they're invested in this world through the social media platforms and doing things and actions and using functionality that enable this world to kind of come into existence. So they're as much involved in the world making as platforms should be as well. And so it's a kind of collective effort that we all should be able to kind of strive for. And that's where we're, I guess we're going in terms of thinking with some of this data kind of moving forward. Yeah, awesome. Well, that all sounds incredible. Look, I think that's probably, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up here. I could probably keep asking you silly questions for a long time. But for anyone that wants to keep up with either of your work, where where's the best place for them to go? So I think it's probably a probably a Google search on the Western Sydney website. If you did want to find out some more, particularly about this project, it's on it's available on the Western Sydney website as a report and we can potentially link to that maybe. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. Shiva, anything from you resources wise, social media links? Plug? I think yeah, I think I think I'm with Ben. I'm really bad at promoting myself, actually. That's so, all good. Um, so I think, so I think, yeah, I think I think I should come up if you search me at Western Sydney University. So I think that probably would be it. But I can always pass you my Twitter or something, right? They can yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put all those links for sure. You guys are too humble and because you're too busy doing the work, which is amazing. But um, it's been a real delight and really thought provoking. Lots of food, food for thought. So I really appreciate both of your time um, and Thank keep doing amazing us. work. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Thanks so much for joining me. All right. You have been listening to Undesign, a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Linville for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available. 